Right, here we go. One of the things I've heard, it should be good now. One of the things I've heard preachers do many times in my life is I have heard them use the fact that um, John the Baptist, you know, was like confronting Herod. They will use that as like a reasoning for why preachers, you know, should get involved in politics. I've literally heard them use John the Baptist. Now, listen, I am, I don't believe it's wrong to get involved in politics. Okay, let's not be over the top IFBers where we just take the extreme and everything. There's nothing wrong with getting involved in politics. Here's what's wrong. Compromising. And if you want to get anywhere in politics, you're probably going to have to compromise. And the reality is, John the Baptist, he was not like Baptist preachers who are referencing John the Baptist to justify their method of being involved in politics. He was not out there kissing the rear of politicians. He was rebuking them and calling them out. And you want to know a big difference between John the Baptist and most of these preachers today out there kissing the rears of politicians? John the Baptist got killed by the politician where these guys get honored by politicians. So there, don't compare yourself to John the Baptist when people are getting critical of your just Republican-esque Baptist, you know, uh, you know, your Baptist ways. It's not right. It doesn't even compare. John the Baptist, he got thrown into prison for calling out, he said, it's not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. I wonder how many of these Baptists who just love Trump like nobody's business are going to call him out for all of his wives and all of his you know, sins that he's done in these things over the years. No, they're too busy treating him like the Messiah. So just understand, let's not be over the top and just say that you know, Christians can't get involved in politics. Let's just be honest and say Christians will probably never succeed in politics because we can't compromise. We absolutely can't compromise. And if you tell the truth, like, you know, in a biblical way, you're probably not going to get anywhere. You say, but why don't, you know, people say, you know, say to me, why don't you run for something? Well, because I will probably lose for sure, for one. And I just, one, I just don't feel like getting involved. <laughs> I don't feel like getting involved in that mess. But at the same time, too, notice what happens here in verse 5. And when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. And this is a reminder too. Okay, let's, let's remember this. No matter what form of government is out there, people always do have some power. Say, well, you know, they, you know, they were under a monarchy during that time. Yes, and they still, the people still had some power. Because here's what you gotta to understand too. A king, he needs to keep the mobs under control. You know, there, you know, the, it's the, the one thing they never want us to figure out is there is, there's way more power with us than there are with them because there's a whole lot more of us. But they're really good at keeping us intimidated. You know, the ants figured that all that out in the bug's life, if you remember. Even the grasshoppers were bigger. You know, there's like, hey, there's a lot more of us. Once they figure that out. And, you know, and there, are, there have been people throughout time that have figured that out. And you know who else already knows that? The kings know that. The leaders know that. And as soon as they start fight, you know, or realizing, hey, the people are figuring out that they could overthrow us, you know, a lot of times they, you know, they'll back down on things. And so even though Herod is a king and has a lot of power, understand too, during that time, the Romans were in charge and Herod was just a puppet king in reality. He was just a puppet king. It was his job to keep the peace there. And so the reality was if Israel would have gotten out of control and then the Romans have to come and get involved, they're probably going to be like, what's wrong with you? You're not keeping the peace around here. You're done being king. So just... Understand, Herod was a coward. 
Herod is an absolute coward, and that's how it is with many of the political leaders that we have today. They are cowards. They are people who are installed there. They are puppets that are placed there by higher powers, and it's their job to just keep the mob under control. That's all there is to it. Nothing has really changed. And whether we have a democracy, a monarchy, an oligarchy, whatever it is, people always do have some kind of power. And, and so, even though Herod wants to kill John the Baptist, he, he hesitated. He eventually does it, but he hesitated because of the people. And we, we highlighted that as we went through the book of Acts, that even though the Romans were in charge, they were very careful about how they did everything because it was always about keeping the peace. If these people ever get out of control, everything's going to fall apart. There's going to be a lot of bloodshed. And so, um, you know, we, we always need to remember that power that we do have. And that's why it's okay to let our voices be heard. You know, let's, let's, get, let's let these politicians think that they will lose uh, in elections if they're idiots. One of the things that I always do uh, whenever I vote is you have the judges you can vote whether to, you know, they can retain their positions or thing, things like that. I never know who any of them are. I was just voting no on all of them just because I want them to think people are watching. <laughs> and so if they, if it ever gets close with them, you know, maybe they'll, it'll, it'll motivate them to make sure they're making good decisions because if there's a big public outcry because they make a really poor decision or something, they probably will get voted out. He said, I don't think that's a good educated strategy. It's what I do. It's my vote. I can do whatever I want with it. So uh, anyway, just a little something there. But verse 6 says, But when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod, whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. And she, being before instructed of her mother, said, Give me here John Baptist's head in a charger, and the king was sorry. Nevertheless, for the oath's sake, and them which sat with him at meat, he commanded it be given her. So he didn't want to do this, but he had kind of made a campaign promise. Okay, and it wasn't a campaign promise, but understand a lot of times that happens with politicians. Typically, they just go with whichever way the wind's blowing. But there are times where they've said too much and they can't go back on those things without completely discrediting themselves. And it's just disgusting when you see leaders not governing by principle, not governing by that which is right, but always just doing what is politically expedient at that moment. And I'm telling you, all the Herods in the Bible, I, I believe every single one of them were just full-blown reprobates. I mean, when you look at what Herod the Great did with the killing of the children in Bethlehem, I mean, that's a sick, depraved mind right there. Here we have Herod the Tetrarch, which would have been one of his sons. And according to history, and always remember when you're reading the Bible, not all the Herods are the same. You have Herod the Great during the birth of Christ, but then you have uh, Herod, he left his kingdom to his four sons. And so there were four different Herods and they kind of had control of different regions. And so this is Herod the Tetrarch. Later we see there's Herod, um, there's Herod Agrippa is what he's referred to in Acts. There's Herod Antipas, I believe. I, 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 I'm not going to get all the facts because you have the Herod too who got up and they said it is the voice of a God and not of a man. And he didn't give glory to God and he was eaten of worms. And that's not the same Herod that we're seeing right here either. So um, it, it can get confusing because they're all called Herod, but they weren't all the same individual. But they were all garbage. 
every one of them, according to history too, one of the reasons the Jews hated him so much is they claimed to be Jews, but it, um, it was believed that they were actually Edomites is what people believed about him. And they probably were just they, but again, um, Rome wanted somebody in charge that they knew was under their thumb. And that's exactly what the Herods were during all their time. And so, verse 10, Herod, or it says, and he sent and beheaded John in the prison. And so he, this man was in fact a coward. And his head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took up the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Now, this is my opinion, but I do believe this is one of the reasons Jesus wouldn't speak to Herod. In fact, we're about to see something here. I do believe that what happened with John the Baptist, it deeply affected Jesus in a very negative way. Again, obviously Jesus in no way sinned as a result of what happened here, but I believe the death of John the Baptist, it deeply hurt him. And it bothered him greatly. And I think we're going to see evidence of that as we go through here. But I believe later, we're going to see whenever Jesus goes and he stands before Herod, Herod's excited to see him. It's like, you know, it, it's as though if Herod liked the preaching, the problem was his wife didn't like it. And that's how it is with a lot of couples in the world today. There are many men out there who like hard preaching, but their wives don't. And so you know what typically happens in those situations? The wife gets offended, and then she drags the husband out of the church. And you talk to, I mean, you, you go talk to pretty much any pastor who's been pastoring for any length of time, and typically when people get mad and offended by whatever, it was typically the wife that led them out of the church. Especially when, it was, when they were offended by something that was preached, it was almost always the wife. People, when they get bent out of shape, it's not usually because the man's upset. It's because the wife is at home, nagging his brains out, aggravated over it, and they have no control over their wives. That is just a very common thing, and that is exactly what happened. Because men, men, men are drawn to strong leadership. Men, they want to hear the truth. They want you to tell it like it is. But a lot of times, women don't like that. They, they really don't. And a lot of men, too, they will get into churches where they're hard preaching and stuff, and I think a part of them are doing it hoping that the preacher's preaching will straighten out their wives. And, and I have had men who were whooped by their wives who, you know, they tried to act like I was part of the problem because I wasn't hard enough and strong enough in their preaching. But here's, here's the facts, okay? I can foam at the mouth. I can call women Jezebel, whores, and all that kind of stuff and call them every name in the book if they're not listening to their husband. But at the, at the end of the day, a pastor can only, we are only a backup for your leadership. If you are not a leader, it doesn't matter what I do, it doesn't matter what I preach, you are not going to succeed. You have to lead. No pastor can lead your family for you. They can't control your wife for you. I can only just help, you know, back up some of these things. And so typically, again, but you know, Guys who are whooped by their wives never admit it. I mean, have you ever just met that guy? like, yeah, my wife has me under her thumb. They're not going to admit that. You know, so again, and unfortunately, the pastor typically gets blamed. 
you know, but, you know, at the same time, men who have a backbone, you know, who are men, they're doing fine, you know. And I, and I guarantee you, I've probably said stuff that's probably offended every woman in here before. You know, I don't try to. I've said plenty of things that offend my wife. But, you know, at the end of the day, I can go home and put her in her place, you know. And guys, you've got to be able to do the same thing, too. You know, it's, it's all about being a strong leader. Uh, but some people can't do it. And Herod is another example. I mean, this guy's king. And he has no ability. His wife just has total control over him. She's able to just get him to do things that he doesn't want to do. And it's just a shame. It's an, it's a shame. It's a shame when women lead. It's a shame when women lead in governments. And it is definitely a shame when women lead in homes. It's an absolute shame. Women should not be the spiritual leaders, the physical leaders, all, all that kind of stuff. But again, you know, feminism is not the problem. Feminism taken over is a result of weak men. For women to be able to take over, they had to have dominated the men. So, if you're like, oh, women are, women are taking over society, that's man's fault. The man, men are the problem. Of course, let's, I've said this before and I'll say it again. My wife doesn't like when I say this, but it's just reality. Every woman will run her husband if he lets them. Every woman will. And it's just a simple fact. And it's not just because they're all just rebellious and all that kind of stuff. But women, they want security. Right? They want security. And so when, when the husband refuses to lead, they are going to step in and take over. That is why, why is it whenever there are divorces, typically the women are the ones with the children? Why is it? Why is that? Why is it usually the mom that's there for the children? You know why? Because women naturally do step up whenever men step out of the picture. And, you know, and, and bless their hearts. I'm, I'm glad they're doing that. I'm glad these kids aren't being left out in the streets and things like that. But at the end of the day, that's just women stepping up at the absence of a man and at the absence of male leadership. I believe if the leadership is there, while there will be times there is friction, while there are times there, will, there is conflict, at the end of the day, if you lead, if you stand strong, your wife will fall in line. It's just, it's just reality. And it's, it's how it's always worked. It's, and, um, and so just do the right thing and lead. Be a man and lead and everything will fall into place. So it's, 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 same thing with kids. Kids will run the home if you let them. They will take over. I, I, on bus route, back when I used to do bus route, one of the things they would always tell you about bus routes, always have a program for the kids. Always have a program on the bus because if you don't have a program for them, they're going to have a program for you. And if you've ever worked on a bus route, you know exactly what that means. They will take over and it will be chaos on the bus. And so understand, in your home, if you don't get things under control, the kids will take over. But at the same time, the happier kids are the ones whose parents are in control. They are, they are the happier children. The happier, happier wives are the ones whose husbands are in control. And when the kids take over, it doesn't make them happy. When the ladies take over, it doesn't make them happy. But it happens a lot because men are just doing nothing. And I'm not here tonight to just preach on weak men. But I have a hard time not talking about it when looking at Herod. Because he is the epitome of just weakness and patheticness and spinelessness. And I, do, I just hate Herod's guts. I, when I read about Herod, the more I study about it, I just like, I hate this guy. 
And you know, I do. I believe when Jesus, when he stood before Herod, he wouldn't say a word. He had nothing to say to him. You know why? Because Herod was a full-blown reprobate. It's not like he's going to get him saved. And I don't think Jesus wanted to save him. You know what? I think, I think he hated him. Oh, come on. Jesus. Yeah, yeah. I think he hated Herod. He killed John the Baptist. And Jesus loved John the Baptist. And I believe this deeply affected him. And so look at this. When Jesus heard of it, when he heard of John the Baptist being killed, he departed thence by a ship into a desert place apart. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. He wanted to get alone. He needed some time to process this. He needed some time to deal with this emotionally because this deeply bothers I don't know about you, this comforts me. I like seeing this because, again, sometimes there's things that negatively affect us, that have a negative impact, that are very difficult to deal with. And you know what? That's okay. It's okay when something bad happens if that brings you sorrow, if it makes you angry, if it upsets you, if it brings you grief. It's okay to feel that way. It's natural to feel that way. Something's wrong if this doesn't bother you. And so I think we can learn from Jesus. And notice how Jesus, when he hears about this, he did. He just wanted to get alone. He leaves the multitudes. He, you know, he, he's getting the job done. He's preaching. He's doing miracles. But Jesus needed some time by himself. But it wasn't coming easy because the multitudes, they want him. The multitudes are following. And, and so notice in verse 14, and Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them and he healed their sick. And so notice, Jesus had a personal need. Jesus needed to be alone. Jesus needed some time to deal with his grief. But you know, when Jesus saw that multitude, you know what else he did? He thought about them before himself. And listen, I, I get it. When you're going through something, it's okay, but let's, let's not get selfish during that time. Let's not forget about everybody else during that time. That's an easy thing to do. Okay, it's okay that you need that time and figure out what you need to do to make that happen. But, you know, let's also not neglect things too. Let's not forget about other people. In fact, I think one of the best ways sometimes to help with your grief is to help other people, you know, with, with their grief. Brother Hiles wrote a really good poem. I, 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 I should have thought to find it. I remember reading, uh, hearing read years ago about just basically all the stuff that he was going through and how people were coming to him with all of his their problems, you know, and his were bigger and all that. But basically, the, the way the, the poem ends is that basically his healing and his help came from helping other people. And I believe that's one of the things, too, that probably helped Jesus. While he needed that time alone, you know, it probably gave him a little boost, you know, seeing people thankful for their sicknesses being healed. And seeing these good things happen. So he didn't just neglect uh, neglect everybody. And it says in verse 15, And when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, This is a desert place, and the time is now past. Send the multitude away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals. But Jesus said unto them, They need not depart. Give ye them to eat. And they say unto him, We have here but five loaves and two fishes. He said, Bring them hither to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass and took the five loaves and the two fishes and looking up to heaven, he blessed and brake and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. 
And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up the fragments that remained twelve baskets full. And they that had eaten were about five thousand men beside women and children. And so notice again, and, and, we're see, and we've seen this before, but remember, Jesus did not purposefully put people in a situation where they would need a miracle. We have people that will look at stories like this and use as like, you know, the reason you ever see any miracles is because you never need a miracle. And so, you know what, we're going to go and our church is going to get a massive loan to where we're going to need a miracle to help us pay for it. It's like, no, you don't go putting yourself in a situation where you need a miracle. But understand, sometimes you might find yourself in the need of a miracle and God can provide one, but we don't tempt God. And so Jesus, he was, he was trying to get alone, but the multitudes are following him. And, and they, you know, they're so desperate for this help, they put themselves in a dangerous situation. He did not want them following him out into this desert place. He was trying to get alone, but it failed in that. Because again, even though he's Jesus, he's still, he's still human. And these people are doing things kind of against what he wanted them to do, but he doesn't just, Forget about him. He provides for him. And he, but this miracle, again, is not one that he caused to happen. But it was one that uh, just the situation caused a miracle needed. And sure enough, he provided. And what a miracle this was to just feed a multitude with five loaves and two fish. That right there, too, is what we're seeing here in this story is we're seeing, again, the humanity and the deity of Christ. We're seeing a man who's grieving, a man who needs some time to get alone, a man who's upset, but we're also seeing a man who can heal people of their sickness and who can multiply loaves and fish and feed a multitude. That's what we're seeing. So, as we, I think it's just neat how Matthew is just showing us these things. It's just like you're seeing the power and you're seeing... The humanity, just it's it's really an incredible thing, and we see that throughout the book of Matthew. You know, even at his baptism, when we see the Holy Spirit coming down, what a moment that was! But then we see him go into the wilderness, and he's weak, he's hungry after the forty days, and after that's all done, the Bible says angels came and ministered to him. You know why? Because that fast would have taken a toll on him. He was you you know he was probably pretty messed up physically from that forty day fast. And so, uh, again, while he's God, he's still a man. He's got limitations. He gets tired. We saw how, um, you know, when he fell asleep in the boat, I showed you all the stuff that it says that he was going through, all the stuff that was going on. And I do. I don't think he was sleeping in the boat just to teach his disciples a lesson. I think he was so tired he was sleeping through a storm. That's how tired he was. And then what do those disciples do? Every mom knows this. They've been wore out. They're wiped out. They just had enough. They can't handle it anymore. But then what happens? They're, they finally get some sleep. And then a little kid comes with this great emergency. Mom, I need a glass of water. You know. And then what do the disciples do? You know, Jesus finally is getting some sleep. What are they doing? Freaking out. We're going to die in the storm. And then what did Jesus do? He rebukes the wind and sea. I think he was mad. I, I think he was mad because he wanted to go back to sleep. You know, because he was tired. I don't believe he sinned. Obviously, I don't, I don't believe he sinned. But I, I believe he was upset that he got woke up because he was, he was really tired. And so we forget. We forget about these things. And it says, um, and, well, and we're seeing that in this story too. I'm getting ahead of myself where, with uh, when it's see. But it says in verse 22, 
And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go before him and the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when they had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening come, he was there alone. Okay, now, I don't want to, you know, read into this too much, okay? But, if I can just wonder here for a second. So we have Jesus, he's upset, he's wanting to get alone, he's having a hard time getting alone, but now he finally gets some alone time. And he went up into the mountain alone to pray. The Bible does not record what happened there because Jesus was alone during that time. So we have no way of knowing what took place during that time. But if I may just kind of give a Tommy McMurtry interpretation, a, a speculation, okay? I think Jesus, he went up in that mountain, discouraged, weary, and he spent some time with the Lord in prayer. And again, and, and then after he comes down from that mountain, I don't know, maybe I'm being a little bit of a charismatic here, he's walking on water. You know, I like to think that, you know, it kind of looks to me like after he had that time alone with God that he needed, that he was like recharged to where he's walking on the water. Another thing that reminds us of the deity of Christ. He's a man where he needs to go up into a mountain. He needs to be alone to pray and have some time with God. But he's also God to where when he comes down from that, you know what he's doing? He's walking on the water doing another just incredible miracle here. So verse 24, But now when the ship was in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be, if it be thou... Bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were coming to the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, Thou art the Son of God. Now, there are a lot of ways this passage is interpreted, but, you know, so for example, I've heard some people preach it was wrong when Peter got out of the water. Because Jesus told them, go to the other side. And then Peter, what does he do? He wants to have a charismatic experience. You know, he wants to see a miracle. And even though Jesus wants to go to the other side, he wants to walk in the water. And so when Jesus tells him, come... He's not saying, all right, you know, do it. But he's basically just granting permission. And then, you know, he's, he's you know, allowing permission. But then Peter, he ends up sinking. And, you know, and obviously there's all kinds of principles that we can get from this. Honestly, I don't really care how you preach it. If you want to preach it, he shouldn't have done it. You know, he should have stayed in the boat. Okay, fine. There's some good principles you can teach from that. If you want to be like, you know, some of us, we need to step out on faith and learn to walk on water and, and trust the God. You know what? There's some good preaching there, too. Okay. At the end of the day, okay, what is the, not application, but the interpretation? The interpretation is, Jesus was walking on the water. That tells us something about Jesus. Jesus also allowed Peter to walk on the water. 
I do not believe for two seconds that Peter walked on the water in his own power. I would credit what happened there with Jesus. For sure. I think also we can make an application too. How Peter, how he's walking on the water and everything's fine, but when he starts paying attention to the winds and the waves, then he begins to sink. And this is also my opinion, if I may just share a little more of my opinion too. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Bingo in the fiery furnace. Hey, this is just my opinion. But I personally think that while they were in that furnace, if all of a sudden Shadrach would have been like, we're in the middle of fire and started freaking out. I don't know. I think he might have got burned. That's just, that's just my opinion. But you know what? We see them lose. We see him walking with that fourth man, Jesus Christ. I think they kept their focus on him. I think they kept their eyes on him. And you know what? They, when it came time, they walked out of that fire. That's just my opinion. But, you know, either way, the lesson that we can learn from this and application we can make is keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't pay attention to the storm. Don't pay attention to what's going on. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And when you do find yourself in a situation, too, where you're sinking, you know what? Lord, save me is a good thing to do. You know, when you find yourself in a difficult situation, call on the Lord. We don't just call on the Lord for salvation. We should call on the Lord for really everything. You ought to call on the Lord just to, you know, help you get out of the bed in the morning and not completely mess up your day and do something completely stupid. Because we are all capable of all kinds of foolishness and we ought to be calling on the Lord all the time for literally everything. We should pray without ceasing. So a lot of great applications that we can make from this. But at the end of the day, this is showing us who Jesus was. We're seeing a man who's discouraged, who's sad, who's tired, who's weary, who needs to get alone, who needs to pray. But he's also God because he's feeding a multitude and he's walking on the water. You can't do that unless you're God. And so in verse... Um, Yes, yeah, so in verse 33, where it ended, it says, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. And, you know, and I don't believe that it was at this point they realized he was the Son of God. But I think it was at this point, it was just like they got further confirmation. Like, you are definitely the Son of God. You know, just, it was just kind of one more thing. And I find myself doing that all the time. I have believed, I've, I've been taught the Bible is true my whole life. But... It is, a, it is a regular thing for me when I'm studying my Bible to just come across something and see something and be like, this is definitely the Word of God. does not mean I have just decided that day that this is God's Word, but it's just like further confirmation. Just like, you know what? I'm more sure of it today than I was before. I believe the disciples believed that Jesus was the Son of God before this, but after they saw that, again, it was just like, yeah, there's no question who we are with right now. This is definitely the Son of God. And so verse 34, And when they were gone over, they came into the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out into all that country round about and brought unto him all that were diseased and besought him that they might touch the hem of his garment and as many as touched were made perfectly whole. And so... uh Basically, and this is, you know, it's ridiculous we have to even address things like this. But this touching the hem of his garment, there is a popular teaching out there that is even in Baptist churches where they are, many preachers are preaching regularly. There's one preacher, Ralph Sexton, Baptist preacher, who regularly preaches about the Jewish prayer shawl. The Jewish prayer shawl. And if you are around Orthodox Jews, a lot of times you'll kind of see 
hanging over their pants a little bit, there's like these prayer shawls that they wear under their clothes that have these tassels and, and things on them. And uh, it's something too that they can wear and they'll kind of put over their head when they're praying. And they'll talk, when, Eli- when Elijah wrapped the mantle around his face, that was a prayer shawl. And, and they'll go into all the symbolism stuff. It's like, we have no idea what that mantle looked like. But they'll, they have made these modern day Jewish prayer shawls, these things that's just all over the Bible. And basically when, they, the, uh, when the woman with the issue of blood touched the hem of Jesus' garment, it was the prayer shawl. And so preachers are making it like these prayer shawls have some kind of praying power with the state. Okay, first off, that is ridiculous. That is absolutely ridiculous, especially in this New Testament era to think that some kind of item and some kind of garment is going to have some kind of special anointing and some special power of God on it. Okay, listen, those oracles, the things of the temple, while those things served a purpose for a time, they are finished, they are done. Did you know they all burn up in 70 A.D.? I think that's probably what happened to the Ark of the Covenant too, by the way. I think the Ark of the Covenant, it probably burned up and it melted down. And as cool as it would be if they ever found it someday, at the end of the day, I think it would become a stumbling block if they ever did. I think if they ever do find the Ark of the Covenant, it will cause people to praise the Jews like nobody's business. I, I, I think it would actually be very, it would be very negative for the Jews, spiritually speaking, uh, if if they ever if they ever did find that, I personally think it melted down with everything else in seven, in seventy A.D. and it's because God was done with it. God does not need those things anymore. They only served a purpose. They were a shadow of what was to come. Here's what matters: the blood of Christ and what Jesus did in the cross. Did that one time sacrifice forever accomplished everything? that the temple was not, a cap- not capable of accomplishing. The things in the temple only pointed to the cross. And understand, Jesus went into the temple in heaven and poured out His blood on the mercy seat and sprinkled His blood upon the Word of God. And so understand, when we, uh, in heaven, the proof of our salvation, it is. It's in the Word of God, but it also, it has the tokens. It has it the... The notary, I talked about that a while back. It is literally the blood of Christ. So we have God's word, but then the, the, the authentication of God's word is Christ's blood that is on those things. And we need absolutely nothing from the temple. They don't matter. And if they ever found the Ark of the Covenant, I would not hesitate. I would not hesitate. I would not flinch to touch the Ark of the Covenant. I would even flinch. I would not hesitate to open the Ark of the Covenant. So your face might melt. No one. What about those people in the Old Testament? There's a bunch of them that died because they looked at the Ark of the Covenant. God wasn't done with it then. God is done with it now. It, ha- it has no power. And, and here's the thing too. I have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. The reason the priests would have died from those things back in that time is because if they didn't do all the purifying things, when they got in the presence of God, it would have killed them. But I have been cleansed with better things than that of the tabernacle and better things than that of the temple. I have been washed 
in the blood of the Lamb, and I am sanctified, I am holy, I am a priest of God, right now, anyone who is saved is a priest of God right now, and I'm telling you, I am so confident in what Jesus Christ did, I would not even blink, I would, in a heartbeat, I would touch the Ark of the Covenant. Not to be cocky and disrespectful, but because I'd like to see it, and I'd like to see if the Ten Commandments were still inside of it. That's why, that's why I wouldn't hesitate to touch it. Well, the Jews are all panicking stuff. Now, if I did die, it would probably be because I'd get shot by the Jews or something like that for desecrating their holy item or something like that. That's the only reason I would die from it. But if I was by myself and I found it in a cave or something like that, I'd be all over it. I'd be all over it in a heartbeat. But I say all that to say that when they're touching the hem of his garment, it was never about the garment, folks. It was about who was wearing the garment. That's what it was all about. It was not about the fact that they, you know, that they physically touched something, but that was their way of going to Christ. That was their way of getting to Him. When they are touching the hem of His garment, in that was in, in the best they knew how, they were just trying to get to the one who they believed could heal them of their sickness. That was their way. Do you realize these people too? when they are going and they are touching the hem of His garment, when that woman said within herself, if I may but touch the hem of His garment, did you know that was equivalent to them calling on the Lord? Another reason too, it's ridiculous to tell people, you don't have to call on the Lord to be saved. Obviously you have to call on the Lord to be saved, but how one calls on the Lord. Okay, Again, people might not always know how to express themselves. They might not know what words to say, but anyone who is doing whatever they have to do to just reach out and go to Jesus, that is calling on the Lord. And just, and just be, and a lot of times people might not know what to say. They might not know how to respond, but it, it is, it's a heart thing. And so when these people from the heart believe that Jesus Christ could heal them and they're just trying to get to them, that, that'll, I, I do, I believe that was an equivalent of them calling on the Lord. And obviously this was for physical healing. But I believe many of these people believed on him and got saved too. And, and, and in fact, I believe that probably everyone who did get the physical healing probably did get saved too because the reality is it was faith that caused them to even believe that he could heal them. And I believe that they would receive salvation then too because there were also places where Jesus didn't do miracles. You know why? Because they're unbelief. And so the ones who were believing on him they were receiving these physical miracles. But more importantly, they were receiving the spiritual miracle. They were receiving the salvation. And so to sum up chapter 14, I think we're just seeing more evidence, too, of the violence taking place against the kingdom of heaven. That's what we're seeing when they killed John the Baptist. And I, it was, this was growing. And so while they had been plotting things, now it's actually being executed. It's actually happening. They had John in prison. Now he's dead. Chapter 14, too, is just showing Jesus give further proof of who he was. We are seeing his deity, and we are also seeing his humanity. And I love seeing his deity because it comforts me that he can do whatever I need done for me. He can answer my prayers. He can solve my problems. He can save my soul. That, that is comforting to me. But I am also comforted in seeing his humanity because it's a, it's a reminder that, you know what? When we find ourselves weak, when we find ourselves going through difficulties, we, under, we can understand too that Jesus is not 
a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He knows what we're going through. He understands how we feel. He, when, when he sees you crying, when he sees you sorrowing, when he sees you weary and discouraged, Jesus faced those same emotions. He did it without sin, but he understands. It's kind of like, have you ever been there before where you saw somebody that maybe they lost their temper and maybe punched somebody that maybe they didn't really deserve to get punched, but at the same time too, it's like, you know, that wasn't legal. They probably shouldn't have done that, but you can't help not be like, yeah, I don't have that big of a problem with that. Okay. I, you know, and that, you know, and, and so we're not, you know, we're not like, it's, it's kind of like when, uh, you know, everybody loves the guy that uh, shot the one child guy who had molested his son. That guy's still like a hero today. He didn't get in any trouble. You know, obviously we don't believe in taking the law in your own hands. But when you see somebody do something like that, we can all relate. You know why? Because that's probably what we would do. And so understand, even though Jesus never sinned, he was tempted. So when he sees us fail and given to temptation, he doesn't just look at us with disgust and just hate on us and stuff like that. He understands and he is compassionate and he's merciful and he will forgive us. And, and the only reason he is able to do that is because he lived as a man and he went through these things. And that is why he is the mediator between God and man. That is why God has us go through Christ. And that is why God will even allow Jesus to be the one to make intercession for us. Because God the Father understands that there is. There's a, there's a separation that he has from us where he... You know, God the Father has never been a man and tempted with sin or anything like that. But Jesus Christ has. And the Father does love the Son and He trusts the Son and He has put all things, uh, you know, He has given Him authority in these things. And so whenever Jesus Christ makes intercession for us, God goes along with it because of the Son. And it's just one more reason we have to go through Jesus Christ. So what we can learn from this chapter, there are, there are very real struggles Jesus went through. And because of the fact God is all-powerful and He always succeeds, we take it for granted, you know, the fact that Jesus' mission on earth, it was difficult for Him. And it wasn't just difficult at the cross. He faced many difficulties. He faced physical challenges. He dealt with grief, sorrow, disappointment, just like the rest of us. The only difference is He always did the right thing. He never failed And we're thankful for that. His mission on earth was not easy, but he did fulfill it 100%. You know, when I was was in school, typically if I got 100% on a test, it was because it was easy. You know, the hard ones, it was, you know, it didn't usually happen. Jesus got 100% on a test that was extremely difficult. And that's only because of who he is. So the, the deity and the humanity of Christ are both comforting facts and both fascinating studies learning about him and so hopefully this was a help with that let's pray dear lord thank you so much for this wonderful chapter thank you lord for what you did for us help us to lord while we should always remember the cross and keep that in the forefront of our mind help us to remember just the rest of your life uh the daily struggles the the hunger the weariness the discouragement the sorrow uh it it is comforting me to know that you went through all these things and Lord, I pray you'll help us that uh, when we face these things to remember you do have uh, these things in common with us and uh, that we'll remember to go to you 
uh, so you can provide the comfort that only you can give. And I pray you'll help us to follow your example the best we can whenever we find ourselves uh, dealing with these very things. In your name we pray. Amen.